Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. No House of the Dragon update from you? Do you stay up for it? Oh, yeah. Do you want to you get into that? No, what? The new Game of Thrones uh, so spinoff? I never watched Game of Thrones. Well, you don't have to. <laughs> now yeah. you can finally learn about the, the sort of the prophecy. That this is the pre... Game of I don't... This, to me, is like you're Hobbits. Not, I don't care about Targaryen. Hobbits. The world of this Westeros. This is not a, a hard Hobbit to break for me. I just don't want to watch it. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. So you're seeing this on your podcast machine. You know, the thing that you have on your phone. Well, it's late in the day. What is he doing? I thought it was summer schedule. I thought he was probably off on a Thursday. No, it's late in the day. It is actually technically... Four o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday. I just got back a little while ago from Delaware. I went to Delaware, scooted away from Delaware for three days. I'm interested in working again. I'd like to work on Monday. I'd like to go back to work. Um, it's been a long time since I've worked. A couple of things happened. You know, I'll get to them in a second. Let me, let me start. I have sad news to start, but I think it's important to talk about. David Povich passed away the other day. David Povich is the older brother of Maury Povich, the older brother of Lynn Povich. David was in his late 80s. David was a wonderful lawyer in Washington, D.C., and a wonderful person, an absolutely wonderful person. I had a long talk with Maury about it after David passed away, and Maury said he idolized his brother. You know, you, you think, well, here's Maury Povich, and he's eminently successful over a long period of time, He's got a great skill set. You think, would he idolize his older brother, who is not on television, for example, who isn't a guy who can shoot his age in golf all the time? He adored and idolized his older brother. And he told me stories that if he made a suggestion to the family, if Maury did, Shirley looked at him and went, yeah. But if David <laughs> made a suggestion, Shirley said, that's a really good idea, David, and we're going to do that. Very, very nice man. Used to come into chatter every once in a while. Used to bring a dog. He had a dog with him. Um, lived two, three blocks from me for a long period of time. Uh, just a wonderful man, and I, I wanted to let people know about that. Um, and as I said, I, I went to Delaware. I scooted away. An odd thing happened. So I'm out walking Chessie. I usually walk her at about 6.15 to 6.30. I get outside to walk her around. And around the corner from where I live, on the route, you know, when you have a dog, you have sort of favorite routes for different times of the day. You got to vary it for a dog. You can't take the dog to the same places all the time. But dogs aren't that smart. You can take them to the same place, say, in the morning. And we have a morning walk. And our morning walk carries us past a bunch of houses literally around the corner from us that back up onto a canal and in the morning in one of these houses, I see this all the time. A guy at least my age, maybe a little bit older, but at least my age, comes out of his house, gets into his blue Prius, turns on the radio, sits there, listens to the radio, reads the paper, and sometimes has coffee. This is at 6.15 in the morning. This is a daily event when I'm there. So I got to figure it's a daily event when I'm not there. Yeah. Leaves the door open. No, door's closed to his car. This is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. The other day, I walked right up to him. I made the gesture with my hand, my right hand. Could you roll down the window? I don't think I look all that menacing. 
He looked up at me, rolled down the window. I said, I watch you do this. What are you doing? You come in the car, you listen to the radio, you read the paper, look at you, you got coffee, what are you doing? He looks up at me, he goes, I don't want to wake my wife. Oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that sweet? Yeah, that is. I don't want to wake my wife. I didn't say, I said, great. You know, and I walked away with the dog, but I'm thinking, get her out of bed. <laughs> oh, what's the big deal here? Maybe she wants to listen to the news. Maybe she wants to read the paper. It's, it's just, it's an Why is your first thought to always approach in these situations? I know it's bad, isn't it? And then with the <laughs> crank down? Yeah. Yeah, it's Minding bad. his own business. You've I got understand. a threatening dog. Now, I, I thought there was a chance that this was just part of his... This was his way to, to have routine if he didn't have the, the okay. same commute that he might but, have had in yeah, years but he, past. You know, if, if he had, he never leaves. Like, it, the car doesn't move. Right. He just, he just sits out. in the right, car. It's the just, car it's a room. It's yeah. a room in his house, in effect. It's That's just a, outside. Yeah, it's a, it just seemed odd to me. And now. Did you no, ask to see the manager or anything no, like that? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. So I played golf. Uh, first oh, day I got oh, there. Depot, dad. <laughs> we were sort of rained out the first day. Uh, but then Mike Farr and I. We went out and we played 11 holes after the rain passed. He's good, isn't he? Michael Farr's a good player. Yes. He's good on television, too. Oh, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, on CNBC. Yes. Love Michael. So, um, so we played 11 holes. That was good. Then the next day I played 18. The day after that I played 18. There's one funny thing happened. Um, yesterday, yesterday is Wednesday, I had a tee time at 2.40. That's pretty late, 2.40. This I time mean, of year. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's getting dark at that. Not dark, dark, but I mean, the shadows are it's there. It's a beautiful finish. Yeah, it's a lovely 18 um, to finish on that. But, you know, so you, you worry a little bit. And I'd said, you know, is there any way I could get out in the morning? Do you have an event? And I said, well, we have a member guest. And I said to the person on the phone, well, you know, if you're not full up, I'll, I'll go grab somebody and I'll join. And she said, it's a ladies member guest. <laughs> so, oh. I, so I was shut out. So I played at 240. <laughs> anyway, so today... I just wanted to play nine. I wanted to get out of Delaware by 11 o'clock to get back to do this podcast and do some things that I had to do, deliver checks to a variety of people. And so I was going to play nine. I signed up for eight o'clock. I was with these two guys, Kelly and Jim. I'd played once before with Jim. And Kelly was somebody who I thought I'd played with, but he reminded me about the time he met me in Minneapolis at the Super Bowl. I can't tell you how many people say that to me, and I just, you know, I have a blank stare. And, you know, I, get, I say, I, I wish I could tell you I remembered that, but I don't remember. He was, he's a good player. He was a good player. On the first hole, nobody needs to know this, of course, about the Rehoboth Beach Country Club. But on the first hole, uh, there's trees on both sides. It's not a narrow fairway, but you got to be pretty good to hit it. It's a bit of a shoot. Yeah. Make sure you use a white golf ball. Yeah. Well, you yeah. got the range. Because the, the if you use a yellow, you've got the range on the left, and you'll never find the ball because all the range balls are yellow at Rehoboth. So I hit it in the right-hand trees. I'm in the trees, and I have to get out. I have to hit a low five to get out. It's about a 380-yard hole. I get out. I hit a nice shot a little bit past the sand trap on the left, and I'm 138 out. And I know I'm 138 out because the carts have what you have. They give you that number. Now, I'm not a strong hitter or anything like that. The wind is a little bit against. I take out a five iron. I'm just hoping to make contact. I hit a pretty good shot. Lands on the green. I'm thrilled. It continues to roll and roll, and I hear it hit the stick. Oh. And it doesn't go any further. It drops. Birdie now, it's a birdie. Three. It's a birdie. I, you know, for from, from most, that would be an eagle 
for most because they wouldn't have been in trouble. But I, I'm stunned. The guys I'm playing with are stunned. It's like, are you kidding me? It went in? Yeah, I got a three on this hole, which is the second hardest hole on the front. Now, at that point, are you thinking, we might play 18, boys? Well, <laughs> you know, I, it did cross my mind until the second hole where I got a 10. Uh -huh. yeah. I got a 10. I hit it in the trap. Yep. I couldn't get out. I finally got out. I bladed a wedge. I couldn't get on the grid. I got a 10. But I had that. After that, I played fine. But I had that moment. I mean, I have in my life, I have in my life put it in from the fairway. But usually the, the two times that I've done that have been on par fives. And I've done it with a wedge. I've done it with a wedge. This was a longer iron. So I, I, thought you, I, I felt thought you did it on a par four and we were playing Indian Creek. With the nine iron and I never saw it. Yeah, because that was an uphill par four. Yeah, I never saw it. I mean, the, the, the green was blocked. There's no, could, no better feeling than to see the ball tracking. I saw it go, because yeah, I'd seen it. Allen's. I'd seen the socialites last week from 200 out. <laughs> and that was an well, eagle. He's, he's a good player. Yeah, he's a good player. I'm not a good player, but it went in. I saw it. I heard it. I waited for it to bounce beyond. Yeah, these are those heavy. In. These are the heavy wooden um, sticks, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was really great. thrilled about that. Was there a celebration? You know, like like soccer? You know, you're running around. No, no. But I mean, well, it led us to talk about holes in one, oh, and sure. if they'd ever had a hole in one, if they'd ever seen a hole in one, and stuff like that. And on the third hole, Jim, one of the guys I was playing with, it's a red pin up front. It's 170 yards on the white. He hit it to four inches. Oh. Like, we thought that was going in. <laughs> we thought that was going in. So, very exciting. I, I know nobody actually cares about this. Well, I think with that, you would be in the top 20 of the PJ Tour's new impact program. That's unbelievable. Everything they're doing to combat... We'll talk to Sands tomorrow. Yeah. But everything they're doing to combat the Saudi Tour is just what was, had been suggested by the people who put together the Saudi tour X years ago. Like, this, these are all Greg Norman ideas, basically. The, yes, and even yeah. if you listen to Spieth and Rory, they'd say, it's not that Phil had the wrong idea. He That's just right. went about it the wrong way. Right. Did so. you see Norman's Instagram post? No. So he, he does that whole thing about, like, if you're at school, it's like, okay, you can copy my homework, but just make sure it looks different. No, I, I mean, he, look. <laughs> Maybe David, he's, David Povich He's a bad guy. It. Greg Norman is a mean guy who has spent the last 25 years of his life trying to destroy the PGA Tour for slights real and imagined. But some real. Some real. But it is hard, it is hard not to concede that these ideas, now I'm not talking about the Saudi Tour, I'm talking about some of Greg Norman's ideas are what the PGA Tour, which hates him, are using. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, go back to the WGC events, which are the sort of marquee, you know, worldwide events that they have. That's that Norman's goes back idea. To his from the mid '90s. That's Norman's idea. I, I, I've said this a thousand times that I think that the ultimate resolution of this will cost him and Jay Monahan their jobs, but certainly Greg Norman it will cost him his job because he's, you know, he's like a lightning rod. I mean, you know, he's 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 too big, you know. What what is uh, what's that line? Um, it was too hot not to cool down. Is that a Cole Porter line oh, from yeah. some song? Too hot not to cool down. Yeah. All right. So we'll take That's a break. It. Is Barry with us first, or is Jeff Ma? Barry is going to be. It's with a us big first. treat for people. Jeff Ma is going to join us. Not 
not to pick games because we haven't started the season yet, but to talk about future bets, which I don't really understand, and to say to me, yes, you can bet the WNBA. You can probably bet <laughs> shot by shot in the WNBA. It's just great. It's just great. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This, this is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. The quote which John Lennon made to a London columnist has been quoted and represented entirely out of context. John gave an interview to Maureen Cleave at the Evening Standard in which he made a chance remark saying the Beatles are more popular than Jesus Christ. But he said, oh, I don't know what's wrong with the church at the moment. The Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ. You know, like they're not building Jesus enough. But I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it as a fact. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong. And now it's all this. The repercussions were big particularly the, what they call the Bible Belt. The Beatles made a statement that they're getting more better than uh, Jesus himself, and the Ku Klux Klan, being a religious order, is going to come out here and make a stop to these accusations. This is not about blasphemy, 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 blasphemy. It's 50 years ago. It's 50 years ago It is when John Lennon said that. Yeah, maybe more. Maybe more. This is Sean Altman. you got to hear this letter from Elliot Olshansky. In my sophomore year at Dartmouth, and I add parenthetically humble brag, <laughs> I was working in the college newspaper office one day when a tall man entered, introduced himself as Sean Altman, dropped off a couple of CDs in advance of a concert he was playing at the college-owned bar, the Lone Pine Tavern. At the time, I politely accepted the CDs, wondered why a professional musician was trying to get coverage in a college newspaper. But it was only after he'd left that I'd just met the former lead singer of rock Appella, whom I'd watched for years on the PBS game show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Yes. And the co-writer of the show's iconic theme song. Naturally, I took a greater interest after that, and over the years, I've had the opportunity to see Sean perform on several other occasions and strike up something of a friendship. Now I'm pleased to be able to share two of Sean's songs. The first, Taller Than Jesus, is the title track from Sean's first album for his comedy act, Jumungus, and is a riff on the outrage that followed John Lennon's infamous remark that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. The second, which you'll hear later, Town No More, is from his album Altmania, and was chosen to help correct your Houston Street pronunciation following your flub with Jim Basnight's song on the August 10th show. Both albums, along with the rest of Sean's music, can be found on Spotify and other streaming platforms. He's really good. He is. Really good. Yeah, that, Rockapella. Rockapella. Michael, you were in uh, an acapella group. I mean, yeah. these guys, those guys are really good. Oh, the best part of waking up. Yeah, they're really good. Okay. Uh, he plays in Barry's Verluga, and I want to be very careful with this word that I'm going to use, and I want to say um, that, that we're going to go local for a little while here for people that, you know, we're going to go about the gnats and the sale of the gnats for a little bit. Has Ted Leonsis, Barry, was part of a group of people who wrote a story that Ted Leonsis was in the mix now to buy the Washington Nationals who are for sale 
And even before I start, my son just asked me this question, Barry. The Angels are for sale, and the Nats are for sale. Can you ever recall two baseball teams being for sale at the same time? I don't have the kind of uh, I don't have that right at my the tip of my fingers, but I I don't have a circumstance that that was the case for for sure. I mean, the Mets have been sold recently. The Marlins have been sold recently. I don't think that their sales overlapped. Um, I'm not 100% sure what the impact of Artie Moreno's announcement um, that he's exploring a sale of the Angels has on the um, Nationals' pursuit of a sale. I would say that one of the the people that's interested in in the Nationals is uh, a Korean-American businessman named um, Michael Kim, Mm -hmm. who runs a a huge uh, fund in, in Seoul, and maybe he would think, well, it's a lot easier to get to L.A. and Anaheim from from Seoul than it is to get into D.C., so maybe that would right. have an impact. But I, to answer your question, I can't think of a time when two have been up for sale at once. So let me, let me be very careful in this wording because I was an English major. Has Ted Leonsis, and here's the key word, this is the verb, emerged? To me, what emerged means is you're not just splashing around in the water. You are most of your body is out of the water and you are the lead dog. In my mind, that's what emerged means. It means to leave the others behind to a degree. Would you go that far? I don't know it to be to that extent. Here's, here's what I do know that in order to become a legitimate bidder on the nationals, you couldn't call up major league baseball and say, I want to look at the financials. I couldn't call up Major League Baseball and say, I want to look at the financials. You have to go through a screening process. You have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. You have to come with financial credentials that would Mm -hmm. say you're a legitimate bidder for this operation. Ted Leonsis initially hadn't taken those steps, and I think some of that is because he has a close relationship and a long-time working relationship with Mark Lerner, who runs the yeah, I want to ask now. about that, too. Yeah, yeah he, he could have been getting information on the side the whole time. But in order to really pursue it, you've got to go through the official channels, and you've got to work with the investment bank, Allen & Company in New York, and, and you've got to take the steps that allow you to get into this, what they call a data room, where all the information, the, the, all the ledgers, all the pluses, all the minuses, all the costs, all the revenues are available to you so that you can know exactly what you're purchasing. Ted Leonsis has done that now. He has also, importantly, partnered with David Rubenstein, the old head of the Carlisle Group here in town. He's a a massive philanthropist in in Washington. He's got his name on everything from um, uh, an exhibit at the National Archives, yeah, the Kennedy Center, the Panda exhibit at the the zoo. He comes with big money. Um, So I don't know... Tony, if I can say Ted Leonsis is the leader, I can right. say that Ted Leonsis is a legitimate and, and you know, absolutely a contender to buy this team from the learners. Ted Leonsis owns the Washington Capitals. Ted Leonsis owns the Washington, they're not the Bullets anymore the way it should be, the Washington Wizards. Ted Leonsis has partners who own um, the WNBA team, the Mystics. He probably has some soccer stuff here, there, and everywhere. He's put betting windows into his building. He's done all of that. He was at the forefront of AOL when that started, and he's friends with Mark Lerner. 
This is another word I'm going to ask you. Is the friendship with Mark Lerner, and Mark Lerner has invested in Ted Leonsis' monumental sports, which is what he calls his group, has that friendship made Mark Lerner pivotal to directing the sale to Ted Leonsis, in your opinion? I think what will direct the sale to whoever the team is sold to is whose bid is $1 more than the other person's bid. Really? Um, I okay. think this is, is very much a financial consideration for the learners. Um, and $1 more is an exaggeration, of course, um, because yeah. then they would, they would give it to Ted Leonsis and, the, and the, the local connection, the person who's been trying to build up sports in this town for a long time. But I, I really think that um, the learners got into this business in 2006 and won the auction to, to buy the Nationals from Major League Baseball, who moved the team here from, from Montreal. Um, and they found out after 16 years that um, it's not a moneymaker in the way that their commercial real estate um, business and the way their private equity business now um, has made money over the years. They are people who are very, very disciplined about what they want from their businesses. They are used to getting um, the kind of returns out of their businesses that um, that they've gotten for years. And if baseball doesn't return that on a year-to-year basis, and the only way they get it back is to take an entity that they bought for $450 and million dollars and sell it for $2 billion, then that's, yeah. what, that's what they're going to do. I don't think there's a lot of romance in this for, for them, because if they got caught up in the romance, Tony... They'd, they'd be going out and trying to win another World Series for this town. Um, I, I think that the romance got less fun, uh, the, the, the profit margins weren't wide enough, and, and they want to sell it um, to make as much money yeah. as they can. Too bad, because as the Eagles said, hopeless romantic, here I go again. Romance would have been good. Normally you would say that Ted Leonsis would be a fine person to have. He's got local ties. He's involved in sports. So is Dan Snyder. Will baseball be leery of Ted Leonsis on any level, or do you think they look at him, especially with the money he's got? I think he's got um, more than that. Is is who who is he involved with? Is Steve Jobs' widow? Is, is she's yes, involved Laura with him Powell too Jobs. as well? Yes, I mean she, and she Rubenstein. Yes. They, I mean, there's real, real money there. Do you think that baseball looks at Ted Leonsis and says, he's the one we want? That's a good idea. You know, that's a hard one, um, Tony. I, I mean, I've, I've pondered this and actually wrote about it today in, in a piece that will publish in, in tomorrow's paper. Um, oh, you know, sorry, what do we know the... about yeah, what do we know about Ted Leonsis as an owner and what kind of clues would that give about how he would run um, the Nationals, and, and this is all, as I said in the column, like, you know, speculation, but informed speculation. Um, one, there's not a lot of precedent for a single person owning three major league franchises there in, is in not. one town. There Dan is Kroenke, not. Dan Kroenke and his wife, um, Ann Walton Kroenke, who, who's a, the, the Walmart heir, heiress, um, they own the Nuggets, and the Avalanche in Denver as well. Well, there and Stan Kroenke owns the the Rams, who just won the Super Bowl. So yeah. that's the one example that has some bearing. But I went through it, and there's there's really only um, a handful. I think something like eight 
uh, individuals who own even two teams in, in one yeah, town. Uh, the Pagulas do Detroit. in Buffalo. Yeah, the Pagulas. Yeah, Mike Illich, um, yeah. yeah. Reinsdorf in Chicago with the Bulls and the White Sox. There's a few like that. This would be a little bit, um, I mean, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly un- unusual. Uh, and baseball is, you know, baseball tends to be run by by baseball families. Um, that's the way they've always loved it. So I'm not sure how the league office would view that as a, a plus or a minus. Um, I think locally, you know, people kind of overreacted when the learners said they would um, pursue s- selling the team in April and because there's still a scar here for longtime Washingtonians of, well, I mean, they moved our senators in 1961, Twice. and then they moved them again in 1971, and we went yeah. 33 years without a baseball team, and if another out-of-town owner comes, they're just going to move them. Um, well, that's not true. Ted would go a long way toward assuaging any of that uh, idea because he's completely yeah, invested in this community. Um, yeah, agree so, with that. So, you know, could you make an argument that he would be spread too thin to really um, manage a baseball team? Sure. Could you also say that means he would have to hire real baseball people to run a real baseball operation and he wouldn't be a meddling owner? That could be the case as well. Um, there's a lot to kind of chew on. It's a great kind of barroom discussion of, well, wait, would this be a good idea or a bad idea? Um, initially from fans, I've heard you know all sorts of thoughts in all sorts of those directions. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I, I will say that I don't think you can look at his record and automatically say that these are the Roonies. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't think that. Um, I think he's done, he's won a Stanley Cup. The basketball team is dis, uh, disastrous, too strong a word, but it isn't very good. He has been a very patient owner, though, most of the time with coaches and general managers, to his credit. Some people will say not to his credit. I would say to his credit. The Nets are, and I'm adding this parenthetically, they are god-awful. They stink beyond anything you can imagine, given where they were less than three calendar years ago. That story in the paper the other day, um, off the Dan Coco statistic, which is now, their starters, Barry, 40 straight games without a win. 40 straight games without a win for a starting pitcher. It, it, I would say, have you ever seen anything like it? But you haven't because nobody has. That's an amazing stat, isn't it? It's an amazing stat, um, particularly what you, for what you said, given where they were three years ago. And <laughs> yeah. three years ago, at this time, they were in the midst of resurrecting a, a season that looked like it would be um, lost. And they were doing it behind... Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg and Patrick Starting Corbin. Pitching. And yes. that's, that's what Mike Rizzo, um, he believes that, you know, his mantra is with starting pitching, anything is possible and without it, nothing is. And, and even though the game has changed and the starting pitcher impacts um, a game less than he has or ever has before, Mike Rizzo still believes that. And so it's why, and if you want to get really into the weeds on this, it's why Cade Cavalli, their top pitching prospect, who will start tomorrow night, make his big league debut. It's why that matters, because you have to get, while the product is awful, and while you transport yourself back to 2009 and 2010 when they were losing 100 games and and starting to assemble a core, um, you want to, as a fan, see, okay, there's a piece that I can envision in 
two or three or four years being an anchor and a and um, you know uh, a pillar for the new core to come. Um, they've got to have starting pitching if Mike Rizzo is the, is the GM going forward because that's how he believes a, a team will be built. And and that this forty game streak um, maybe it would Believe be symbolic him. if if. Cavalli breaks it tomorrow night and gets a win in its major league debut because they've got to have something to hang their hat on. They'll carry him around on a chair through the streets of Washington if that <laughs> happens. They'll make him the next Strasburg, whether or not that's true. They'll do it. It's 40 games without a starter getting a win. Just think about this. Because what it means is not only are the Nats not hitting enough, but half the time they don't even last through five, Barry. They don't even last well, through five where they can get the win. Yeah, and and you know I don't want to get into a nerdy like pitching pitching wins don't really matter as a statistic anymore. They which, do which matter, is I believe. But they, I mean we'll debate that elsewhere. They they don't, but it is indicative of exactly all the stuff you said. In order to have a streak like this, an unprecedented <laughs> streak like this, you so many things have to be going so badly that you don't just stumble across one. Um, you know, when on a random Thursday afternoon in, in Seattle, you know. Um, so, yes, it's incredibly striking. It does show, um, it, it, it symbolizes how far they've fallen from three years ago. And, and you've got to try to sift through all that rubble and say, okay, here's the shortstop going forward. Here's the starting pitcher going forward. What do I see in what they got in the Soto trade and what was already here? that I believe I'll be happy we have in three years when we're contending again. It's a very nice of you to come on the show and talk about this. I know it's very local, but it's where I live. I'm not, I'm not, I won't even bother to ask you about Maryland, which is a total disaster going to the Big Ten. I mean, USC and UCLA make so much more sense going to the Big Ten, and they don't make that much sense. Maryland and the Big Ten, right? Disaster. It's a disaster. I mean, it's it's a financial windfall, and they needed sure. that. That's why they made it made this. But as sure. I wrote in that column earlier this week, is like nobody yeah. sings a fight song or waves a pom pom based on a balanced ledger. I mean, that's just not what it's about. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's about <laughs> it's about investing your emotions and your time in your alma mater or your state school, and going there on a Saturday and watching a competitive product, and in taking that money. Um, Maryland has relegated itself to, uh, I mean, a lifetime of irrelevance if, when it comes to football. I mean, there's just no path for them because they play Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State, Penn State. and Michigan State every, every year <laughs> that they can get. You can't map out a 9 or 10 win season like Ralph Regan had in the ACC. Um, and, you know, it's just... And, not to mention that their average score in Big Ten games against ranked Big Ten teams since they, they entered lose the by league, 50. it's 49 to 13. That's the <laughs> average score of 28 <laughs> just, games in which they are 0 and 28. So it's, <laughs> they have consigned themselves to perpetual irrelevance. Yeah. Um, it might, it might make took administrators happy that, yeah, that the, the, Books are they balanced, took the money. but I'm not sure you it know, makes and the fans happy. It's, look, if you ask anybody in the last 25 years about Maryland, what do you want to see? They don't even say football. They say, I want to see us play Duke. That's what right. they say. 
They want to see us play Duke. So now they don't play Duke. They play a bunch of teams that there's no interest in in this particular local area, none whatsoever. And if you don't think this is important, if you don't, look at Georgetown. Look at Georgetown. When people said, what do you want? I want to see us play Syracuse. Look at the Big East right now, and particularly, am I wrong? On I don't think I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. Georgetown Creighton, like that that gets your the hairs on the back of your neck up uh, standing up on a Tuesday night in January. Um, you're right, Tony. And and there's the reason that yeah, whatever we could talk about Maryland as a local story, but there are schools like Maryland across the country that have been victims of conference realignment that has been done for reasons that have less to do with those individual schools and have more to do with markets or other schools. You know, do you think the University of Missouri is thrilled that it's now in the SEC where it gets a, a, a bigger check every year than the Big 12 provided, but they play no one that anybody that cares about? cares and about. Get, and it gets trampled on by Alabama and Georgia and all those schools. So um, college sports are not what they used to be. It's hard for me to not sound like the cranky old man who wishes the ACC were nine, nine schools and he played everybody in a double round Robin. I get that that kind of has that ship has sailed, but I also think that um, you're left with kind of an ancillary byproduct that um, so many schools are irrelevant, even to their own fan bases because they can't gain the footing competitively um, even as their books are balanced. Thank you, Barry. We'll have you on soon. I love talking to you. Thank you. Barry's for Luga, boys and girls. Uh, We'll take a break. Jeff Ma will join us. This is a civilized time for Jeff Ma. It's like almost 2 o'clock in the afternoon in California, so it's good for him. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, this is Sean Altman who was the lead singer um, for Rockapella. Very, very successful acapella group for yes. a billion years. Yeah, really good. This is a song called Town No More. It's a duet with John Jomeshi. Wonderful. Michael, if people like, well, Sean Altman didn't do it. If people like Elliot Olshansky know somebody from Dartmouth <laughs> and want to send us their stuff like Elliot did, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. And he plays in Jeff Ma, and Jeff is going to start once again betting games with us when the games start, which is just a couple of weeks away. But prior to that, I wanted to talk about with Jeff some of the things that I don't truly understand that if you're going to gamble, it seems to me you ought to know about. The first one is a futures bet. Jeff, can you tell us what a futures bet is and how, given the fact that there is a complete absence of contemporary play, so that you can anchor yourself in what a team looks like, how are odds determined on a futures bet? Yeah, so futures bets, there's a bunch of different kinds. 
Um, but the you know the biggest one that you see is odds to sort of win NFL, the Super Bowl, or to win the you know the the AFC East and whatnot. And you know they they base it certainly anchor it kind of on what the team did in the in the prior season, and then they try to figure out like what you know who they added and who they didn't add. But the the the, the main issue with futures is. Because they're not two-sided markets, meaning you can't bet. If you could, if you could bet on, you know, the the Bills to not win it all this year, you'd probably get tremendous value. Because right now they're, you know, they're they're one of the favorites, if not the favorite. Um, they're sort of the darling of everyone going into this season, and you know they're definitely in my mind overrated. But um, most futures markets are are not two-sided, meaning you can only bet on them to win it. So. They actually provide tremendous value to the sports books because not only do they get to sort of only make one side of the market, but they also get to hold your money for the entire season. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I wondered about. You know, I mean, how that works. You you put your money out there. You have to wait 16, 18, 20 weeks for this to happen, and somebody else can play with your money. Who determines, like, who determines the odds of this? Well, the, the sports books determine the odds, right? And ultimately, as people bet into those markets, the odds will change. Um, but the initial odds are set by the sports books, just like any other thing they do. They set lines that way. They set, you know, totals that way. Um, and then, again, they adjust based on the bets they see and sort of the market speaks to what they think is going to happen. Do you like these bets? Is this something you stay away from? Do you like them? Well, I don't know if you remember last year, I had the Georgia futures at yes. Georgia from the beginning of the year to win it all at like 10 to 1. Um, they, they can be fun to bet, but for the reasons that I said, one, they tend to not often present value um, because of the fact that they're not typically two-sided markets and also because they hold your money for so long. One interesting um, futures market is around the NFL MVP. So you can bet on who's going to be the MVP. And there are uh, people that have had tremendous success betting on long shots. The year that um, Lamar Jackson won the MVP, uh, there was a better out there that, that found him, I think, at like really long odds. I can't remember what the numbers were. It was probably like close to 100 to 1 um, and went around Vegas betting all over. And, and the theory was, you know, quarterbacks are often, especially these like quarterbacks that are touch the ball and, and do so much with the ball, meaning like they're so involved with every play, like Lamar Jackson or whatnot. You know, th- these guys um, can be undervalued in the NFL MVP odds because, you know, a guy like Derrick Henry or, you know, Jonathan Taylor, they're never going to win the MVP. They could have That's right. the, best, rec- the Ten- best season in the world, but running backs don't win it. It's quarterbacks that do. They do. You know, uh, on the Kansas City kid, Mahomes, I mean, I bet on him every year. I, I, because I, yeah, but his I think odds are he, not good, right? He's only like seven not, to one. A guy oh, like well, Trey Lance right now, who is again kind of, you know, oh, I see I what you mean. You yeah. can get him for much value, but early on, before they kind of even announced that he was a starter, he would have been an interesting guy to throw, you know, throw a dart at because he's going to be on a team with three very good uh, targets. He's got one of the best play callers uh, in the league. And the team itself should be very good. So he's a guy that, like, right now, he's the look, list I'm looking at, he's about 28 to 1. Probably still worth a shot, potentially. 
can I ask the sort of obvious question now that there's betting everywhere and so many fools are betting all the time and then they are they're fools most of them overwhelmingly they are fools does that you know are you in a better position to win or do you go down the drain because they change the odds in such a dramatic way by being fools yeah I mean I think the fools that are out there that um you know, some are what monkeys and some are uh, <laughs> news prognosticators, whatnot. Like that, the uh, the um, fools definitely <laughs> inform the market some. But the reality yeah. is that the market itself is only really is really more influenced by the sharp betters or the professional betters. It is still, <clears throat> um, yeah, it, it is. And so, I mean, the more dumb money in a market, the better. But generally, those those opportunities to exploit those types of things disappear pretty quickly. Do we, are we getting, and I, I don't want to single out the WNBA, but it, it, I do because Wilbon always talks about we with the Chicago sky driving me entirely crazy all the time. But you, you can bet, can you bet on a soccer, like MLS soccer? You know, can you, you can bet, bet on, on the Little League World Series, right? You can, really. Yeah, you can bet on the Little League World Series. Just so, just to win, or do you? Do, I mean, do you bet pitch by pitch? Are there people that you don't? Bet, you don't bet pitch by pitch, but okay. there is opportunities to bet on each individual game. They tend to be lower limits. I don't think I would ever be able to look myself in the face if I bet on a little league game, but <laughs> I know lots of people that do. You know, I, I mean, again, and I guess this gets into the same sort of question for me. There are people who know the WNBA very, very well. There are people who know D2 college lacrosse very, very well. When you clear out the fools, those people, it seems to me, stand a better chance to make money because they actually have devoted time to something that other people just drift in and out of. Is that true? It is true. But, I mean, what tends to happen, though, in those situations is the limits are pretty low. Um, so you can't, like, exploit it for a lot of money. During the Olympics, because you know my prowess in water polo, uh, yes. I, I found some success betting on the U.S. women's team to win the gold because they're an incredibly dominant team the last two Olympics they have been. They actually lost the game this last year, uh, but went on to win the gold again. Um, and, yeah, so I think in some of these markets where you do have knowledge, you can gain some value. And, and even in the Olympics, even in something like women's water polo, there was, there was enough liquidity to make it worth it. What do you bet before the football season? Like, what do you do in June and July and August? What I've are you been, betting? I've, I've been mostly betting on, on golf. Um, I think golf is, like, one of the most fun sports to bet on. I mean, you guys talk about it a lot on the show. Yeah. Um, you can bet matchups, meaning, like, individuals versus each other. You can bet on outright, like, who's going to win. Um, and you can pretty much bet after each day. So there's always an opportunity to bet on um, someone that's in the running. Um, and, it, and it's pretty fun. Like, I mean, you have an opportunity last, last, last week. I had a bet on Cantlay. So that was, that worked out pretty ooh, well. Ooh, um, this yeah. week, it is actually the situation that I think you talked about on the show. That's frustrating to you where everyone starts at it. You know, like some people start with a head start. I hate right? that. It's like terrible. Four strokes right now. So. Yeah, it's terrible. It's a terrible idea. I mean, 
you know, the, uh, to me, the person who wins ought to win. You got the best 30 players there, this staggered start. I mean, could you see that in the, in the 100 yard meet, 100 meter dash <laughs> where you put a guy out there 25 yards out? I mean, what are we talking about here? That, that, Maybe that's challenging to you as a better, but as a sportsman, you can't really like it, right? Well, it just wouldn't be. It would be nice right now if Scheffler wasn't already four strokes clear or softly, right? Like that's just right. that would just be nice. So, yeah. um, you know, hopefully it ends up being competitive and whatnot. But if it doesn't, you know, I'm totally in your in your camp, which is that it, it kind of ruined what could have been a great championship. So you you bet you you will bet. Matchups, you will bet low round of the day, you'll bet cut, n- not cut. Will you ever put together teams? Are you in any of those betting situations where you get five people and they all, you know, you get a cumulative score against some other team? So we, we do something called the Calcutta, like Rufus and I and a bunch of other uh, serious gamblers. And the Calcutta is actually a, you know, uh, an auction style format where you auction off all the golfers. And the pot size is dynamic based on how much all the golfers go for. And the payouts based on what they do are a percentage of the pot. So it's a a very complicated modeling Mm -hmm. exercise. And we've done this for quite a few different. And some of the prizes are kind of fun. Like you you do like 2% for the golfer that has the highest score on any given hole. Or you have, but you have like, you know, 20% for the winner. So you just model all these things out with, you know, statistics and simulators and stuff like that to get to a point where, um, you know, you can sort of predict these things and everyone has these models and spreadsheets and a bunch of nerds trying to, trying to have some fun. Are you getting any sense that people are betting on the Saudi tour and are they betting on the teams in the Saudi tour, which is a concept I don't even understand on the Saudi tour. Our friend Rufus is betting on the Saudi tour and has told me that he's done quite well betting on the Saudi tour. <laughs> really? So we, really? We can discuss that on Bet the Process this week if anyone wants to listen on the crossover from part uh, from uh, the Tony Kornheiser show. That would be fantastic. You're going to tell me that Rufus said, yeah, I had Schwartzel in the opener. Yeah, I had that. Who's, he's, who is he betting a, a, with? I mean, is there any – who's taking action on the Saudi tour? All, are there a lot of people? They're taking action. If there's, something, if, there's a, if there's stuff out there being played, someone's taking action on it. <sighs> it's so interesting. All right, Jeff and Rufus do bet the process. Jeff will, again, lead – all the people that we ask to bet, he will crush them as he has done for years and years and years. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thank you, Jeff. Bye, Tony. Jeff Ma, boys and girls. Did you not want to ask him the futures bet for, you know, Binghamton to make the Sweet 16 this year? Zero. <laughs> Binghamton will not make the Sweet 16. <laughs> so you probably get some good odds for that. It doesn't matter. It's not going to happen. We'll take a break. We will have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening. You're listening. To the Tony Kornheiser Show. I like the Whopper. I think it's fun. Hey, I'm a Burger King fan. It's been a lot of years since I gave them a try. So I stopped at the one off of Connecticut. All I wanted was a Whopper and fries. But there's a kid behind the counter waiting on me. And I swear this is true. As he's ringing up the sale on the register, I heard 1372. 1372. Well, there's gas stations serving fried chicken up in Baltimore, Ohio. 
Maybe a chocolate fountain at the Golden Corral Is where I could have gone Maybe a 7-Eleven I could stop for a bite I bet their prices are fair Or I should go to the palm with a social light Because at least they like me there that's Joe Arrow. It's so great. It's Traveling Man by Ricky Nelson. It's just so great. It really is. Thanks, that is Joe. so great. Wow. You want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You would as well. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. Now, do you like your bagels sliced or do you like to do that yourself? I prefer them pre-sliced, but if I have to slice them myself... I yep. went to high school. I, I know how to do it. Yeah, I saw you cutting a bagel, yeah. and it terrified me. No, no, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> That's the wrong way to Blade do it. Blade in. That's how I do it. That'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say I don't mind other guys dancing with my girl. That's fine. I know them all pretty well, but I know sometimes I must get out of the light. Better leave her behind with the kids are all right. The kids are all right. Roger Daltrey singing lead. The kids are all right. Thanks to our guests today, Barry Zerluga and Jeff Ma. Thanks to today's sponsors, SeatGeek, Solo Stove, MeUndies. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. We're going into the weeds on La Cheeserie Day in Syracuse. <laughs> the greatest email we ever received, I think. Yes. I think Here is another make one an appearance. from Jason Smorrell, the general manager of the Syracuse Mets. Is it a David Aldrich moment if I hear my own email being read on the show? I don't think this counts, but I got a friend request from Claire Natola. I was like, I know that person. I hear her name on the TK show, so we are not close friends on FB. Um, Facebook. She sends her regrets that she can't attend. So I've also been contacted by old friends from high school who also send their regrets they can't attend. <laughs> All of them, including Claire, think it's a great idea. On the positive side, there's a rumor that Dan Byrne may make it. I can officially retire if I get to hear the live version of Rope and a Yardstick performed on La Cheeserie Day in our park. I thought mini kiss lip syncing on top of the dugout or the capuchin monkeys riding dogs herding sheep in the outfield was the pinnacle of my career, but I was wrong. It is La Cheeserie Day. It's brilliant. And that's from Jason. From Jay Stockslatter in Lancaster, New York. I've recently started to listen to your podcast after years of watching PTI. I enjoy it very much. As I catch up to speed on the jokes that I do not understand, I hope to add to the themes that I have heard. I went to Syracuse University in the 80s. I've also been in Syracuse Mets games. While at Syracuse University in the 80s, I played intramural games against the famous Sean McDonough, American sports commentator. My claim to fame is that I was the intramural ping pong champion one year and received a t-shirt. Eat it, Sean. In addition, <laughs> did you know that Tim Kirchian's son was Otto the Orange when he attended Syracuse? Yes, we did know that. Just more useless information to add to your show. I was excited to hear about the La Cheeserie promotion at the Syracuse Mets on September 7th. I don't understand the reference right now, but would be willing to drive from beautiful Buffalo, New York to educate myself, get a free ticket, see what ticket people would do when I silently whisper La Cheeserie and do some on-the-scene reporting for the Tony K show. Let me know, because as a Tony K newbie, I might be able to educate others and put this on my resume next to my intramural t-shirt award. By the way, when I look up the promotion on the Syracuse Mets website, it shows promotion, La Cheeserie Day details, TBA, and All You Can Eat Wednesday. Perfect for someone like me who knows nothing. As Tim Kirchin says, okay, Tony, see ya. <laughs> I think I'm getting the show. From Jake Hafner, 
So, yes, I had the idea for Tony Kornheiser Day at the Syracuse Mets, now known as La Cheesery Night. And, yes, it's stupid. And, yes, Jason, a fellow little, loved the idea. And, yes, we decided I would email the show to get the ball rolling. And, yes, I dropped said ball by putting <laughs> off the email to the point that life got in the way and I forgot, but allowing to make amends. I've been a listener since the before times when you actually took phone calls. And, yes, I was once a caller. I even remember when the show came to Syracuse and broadcasted from the Sheraton on SU Hill. If you decide to take up... Jake on his offer, I being a bar and restaurant owner, it would be my honor and pleasure to host yourself, Michael, Nigel, and anyone else in your traveling party for all of your lunch and dinner needs while in town. We have plenty of steaks and red wine along with a nice kids menu if Bootsy the Hammer and the Captain make the trip as well, although I don't believe the Captain's diet includes chicken fingers at this point. Jason is an incredible person. He's done an outstanding job as GM of the Syracuse Chiefs, I remember them, Syracuse Nations, and now the Syracuse Mets. Syracuse is a better city for his energy, humor, and work ethic. Rest assured that between Jason and his team, myself with my good looks, charm, and connections, mostly my connections, we will take great care of you. Here's hoping we can make a stupid idea a wonderful reality and celebrate Mr. Tony here in Syracuse at a minor league baseball game. The legs on this are just wonderful. From Peter O'Brien, Dear Dr. Mr. Tony, As an Irishman listening to Monday's podcast from Dortmund, Germany, I was pleased to hear Wilbon has arrived in my homeland. He seemed surprised when he learned we had more than one airport. But I look forward to next week when he declares Dublin a Midwest town. From Barry Spiegel. My bride and I always enjoy listening to you and Wilbon, and never more than when he riffs on facts that are so easy to refute. The Irish population issue. Did I say they have more than Boston? They have more than... The Irish population issue, for example. Wilbon said there are as many Irish people in Chicago, quote, as many as in Boston and New York or close. Google tells me that the U.S. Census tracked this information a few years ago and reported that the New York metropolitan area has the most Irish Americans, 528,000, with the Boston metro area second, 357,000, and the Philadelphia metro area third, 301,000. Chicago metro pulled in at fourth, 246,000. Apparently the fact that Wilbon attended an Irish American high school did not sway the census. We also enjoy his comments about the weather here in Arizona. We're just 15 miles from us. Wilbon wakes to stunningly cooler temperatures than anyone else in the Phoenix metro area. He is a joy. I just hope he doesn't find out that there are other Americans in Ireland, as that might convince him they have more of us than here. By the way, my high school yearbook was named The Legend. It wasn't named for one of our most famous graduates, but it could have been. A guy named Colfax. Don't worry about the summer schedule. Most of us can't figure out how to get the podcast anyway. So whenever you're there, is just fine. Happily from Wilbon's Arizona in the desert, Barry Spiegel. Let me say this. Mike Crowley... He emailed me the other day that he was going to Arizona to Wilbon's, you know, hood. He was going out there. Right. And I said, just remember, Wilbon lives in North Scottsdale, where it's 15 to 18 degrees cooler than regular Scottsdale at any time of the day. And Crowley said, I'm in North Scottsdale. It's 400 degrees. It's 400 degrees. From Jack Glick in Culpeper, Virginia. Last night, my wife sent my daughter and me out to get stuff to make pasta salad. When I started the car, last Thursday's podcast came on. She groaned. I didn't tell her this was my second time through it. At any rate, we went to the Safeway. Being a small town, we only have one of them. As we went down the aisles picking up the ingredients, I surprised her by stopping in the ice cream section, where I quickly found a wide selection of Tillamook ice cream. I picked out the mudslide and proceeded to tell her I had heard about it on your podcast and we were trying it. Once back in the car, the podcast resumed at the mailbag, and my daughter heard about the ranking system, and she said, now I'm invested in creating my own ranking. Five minutes later, we pulled into the garage, and she said, if he's going to get me ice cream, he can keep making podcasts forever. I will reel her in eventually. 
Here's one from Derek in Akron. This will be the one we end on today. I had never heard of Tillamook ice cream. And then the very week you mentioned it, I saw an ad in the paper for two tubs for $7. Eat it, Burger King. (laughs) I realized I was on the verge of my first David Aldridge moment, but only if I immediately left my house and bought some. The woman to whom I'm related by marriage was upstairs on the phone, so I texted, go and get Tillamook. I'll explain later. And to make you proud, and despite barely being older than PTI, I took cash for my first Tillamook purchase. (laughs) Thanks for the show, the laughs, and the ice cream. Derek from Akron. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Okay, we wound up 5 and 11. Not very good. Uh, But there was some worse than us. I guess that's one positive way to look at it. We weren't the worst team in the league. Good job, Steve. Good job. The quote which John Lennon made to a London columnist has been quoted and represented entirely out of context. John gave an interview to Maureen Cleave, the Evening Standard, in which he made a chance remark saying the Beatles are more popular than Jesus Christ. But he said, no, I don't know what's wrong with the church at the moment. The Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ. You know, like they're not building Jesus enough. Well, I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it as a fact. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong. And now it's all this. The repercussions were big, particularly the, what they call the Bible Belt. The Beatles made a statement that they're getting more better than uh, Jesus himself, and the Ku Klux Klan, being a religious order, is going to come out here and make a stop to these accusations. This is nothing but blasphemy, 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 blasphemy. Don't mean to blaspheme But Jesus was a short dude dude, At least compared to me The average guy at the time of Christ Was four foot nine to five foot five I'm taller than Jesus I said I'm much taller than Jesus Taller than Jesus He was long on love But short of limb My t-shirt Fits like a dress on him He could heal the sick And save your soul But he couldn't dunk A basketball I'm Taller than Jesus I said I Taller than Jesus You see Jesus walked on water Turned water into wine But if you want to change that light bulb Call me, I'm Christ, just guy to guy, 
said, hey, Seuss, you want a piggyback ride? The Beatles said they were bigger than you. Well, I've got the height on the Beatles, too. If jeans determine the size of your mind, then my dad must be taller than God. I'm taller than Jesus. I said, I'm much taller than Jesus. I'm taller than Jesus. Much taller than Jesus. Not better than Jesus. Just taller than Jesus. Much taller than Jesus. Susanna, you made me cry And you had a history of wringing my heart dry You taught me so much You taught me so much Don't paint it pretty You don't need to act so kind But where was your pity? Left me behind. You taught me so much. You taught me so much. This ain't your town no more. Not since you walked out of my door. And if I catch you hanging around, I'll run you right out of this town. Of you, a mouse with a mean streak dispatched me out on cue. You taught me so much. You taught me so much. This ain't your town no more. Not since you walked out of my door.